welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeru. Hey everybody, my guest this week is Christopher McCann. He's the CEO and co-founder of Current Health. So Christopher had the idea for Current as a medical student, worked on it, and eventually dropped out to focus on the company full-time. He's got a master's in engineering and computer science from the University of Dundee in Scotland, so he knows a thing or two about building a tech solution. So Current Health, which was formerly called Snap40, has a goal of preventing illnesses for 1 million patients around the world by 2021. They're based in Edinburgh and their patient management product predicts diseases and recommends interventions to physicians and nurses. They use a combination of machine learning, clinical indicators, symptoms and vital signs monitoring. Over to the conversation now. I hope you enjoy it. So Chris, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, mate? I'm good, James. Thank you. Nice to nice to finally meet you. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. It, moving in the same circles for quite a while, I imagine, but uh, no, paths haven't crossed until now, which is quite exciting. Uh, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Chris? Uh, so today I'm in Glasgow. Um, most of the time I'm out of the United States, but when COVID hit, I decided to abandon ship and, uh, and ride it out from Wow. From Interesting. Well, I'm sure we'll get into that story potentially. But um, yeah, look, the way we start these podcasts, dude, is that we uh, we get you to tell your story. And so it'd be great for our listeners. I mean, I know your background. I've researched you heavily before this and uh, all very impressive. And so many things that come up on this podcast about doing different degrees and having different ways of thinking about stuff, like you're ticking loads of boxes. So um, yeah, it'd be great for our listeners, mate, if you could tell us a bit of your story. Sure. So um, I grew up in Paisley, which is just outside of Glasgow. So um, kind of small post-industrial town um, decided to go and do a computer science degree which I did in Glasgow uh, graduated from that and then uh, around about the same time a family member had become quite unwell I was spending a lot of time in hospital and thought hey this seems absolutely fascinating I'd really like to do medicine so decided to, to change career tack a little bit and and started studying medicine in Dundee, got to my third year of medical school and then decided to start Current Health, the, the, the company I now run. Um, and, and I think there were a, a couple of different events leading up to that. The first one was seeing patients as a med student. You know, Dundee's an incredibly clinical course. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. They yeah. send you out onto the hospital wards from from 10 weeks in oh, nice. um, and we would regularly see patients or, or, or get to see patients with consultants who had deteriorated and it hadn't been identified until a point that that was much later than, than would have been ideal and I, I thought it was kind of crazy that we were still super reliant on the nurses and HCAs who were already super busy running around the wards to collect vital signs every six, eight, 12 hours. Yeah. So initially the idea was just, hey, could we automate vital sign capture on the general ward of the hospital and activate the rapid response team earlier? At the same time, my grandmother, she's not unlike a lot of elderly patients. She had COPD and CHF and vascular dementia. And she kept experiencing kind of recurrent deteriorations at home. Some of those led to hospital admission at a point where she was pretty vulnerable and frail. And again, it felt kind of crazy that we couldn't have identified that earlier at home and delivered earlier preventive care. 
as opposed to waiting when you know till, until she had to be admitted to hospital. Yeah. So current Health was 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 born to try and figure out how we could identify disease onset or deterioration earlier and then get the physician, get the nurse to the point of treating that patient at an earlier and more more preventive point. And today we focus most of our attention on the, the, the patient's home and, and trying to get that care and treatment to them at home before they ever have to be hospitalised. You know what, this touches on a, well, you are a perfect case study for a concept that I just bang on about on this podcast all the time, which is that when people have done something different before they enter medicine, they have a different framework and a different toolkit for how to solve problems. And when it's something with the utility of computer science that you can look at problems that you're encountering in medicine and just thinking there has to be and well not even there has to be another way there is another way of doing this and i actually could think about another way of doing this i might be able to build a way of doing this differently so computer scientists data scientists engineers by doing that stuff before medicine you can just look at things in a completely new light and i'm (laughs) in a way i'm almost surprised you lasted until third year to be perfectly honest with all the problems you must have seen if you're clinical from from week 10 but I don't know if you agree with that. And I don't know if it was a common thing in your cohort, maybe, or whether you were one of the only people that did it. I mean, t- tell me a little bit about that. No, I mean, at the time, I think it was pretty unusual that I had come from a computer science background. I mean, yeah. Clearly there were a lot of people in the cohort who'd come from biomedical disciplines or, or dentistry um, or pharmacy, less so from from. Um, technology or science or engineering I, I think it's becoming more common now and um, yeah as I got to the third year of med school there were people entering first year who, who also had computer science degrees um, and it, this is entirely anecdotal and not based on data but in the United States I seem to see more often and um, people from engineering and computer science degrees entering med school mm. potentially because in the United States medicine's postgrad so I, I i think you're absolutely right that coming into medicine with a diverse background and other skills that are not perhaps particularly common within the discipline uh, allows for some really interesting um kind of serendipitous moments yeah what what was it like when you were when you were on the wards and you know you said week 10 you've you've got this computer science degree you've got this different framework and this toolkit for for solving problems i mean were you were you looking at things straight away just thinking that's problematic could be solved that's problematic could be solved because i mean even that's the way that i looked at stuff and i had i had no other background I, i was just i guess someone who just saw broken stuff and wanted to fix it but didn't necessarily have too many means of doing so other than just like spending my time in hard graft trying to get other people to do it but was it, I mean, was it, was it interesting for you from day one looking at the way that healthcare is run from a computer science perspective? Yeah, so I had always been really interested in solving problems and trying to build things to solve problems. And I think the, the you know, as you've touched on, healthcare is, is full of almost analog problems, you know, it has yeah. the and workarounds and people heavy processes and that sort of stuff. Exactly. And I think it's maybe, I mean, obviously I'm biased. I think it's slightly more obvious when you come in from a a discipline where you understand the art of the possible 
to come in and then see things that are so vastly different from how other sectors and other industries are are operating. Yeah, I, I think part of that problem is that um, you know most computer science graduates will go into a couple of other fields. You know, certainly in the UK, they'll go to work in finance um, and then a smaller chunk of them will go and work in technology startups and, and software companies and so on. But a, a huge chunk of them will go into finance because finance pays extraordinarily well. You know, I, I, yeah. I don't know anyone from my cohort in computer science who went to work in, in healthcare um, wow. and certainly none that went to work for the NHS. So I, I, I think... Part of the problem that, that healthcare has um, is it struggles to attract people from these other disciplines who yes. actually can come in and help solve some of these operational problems. So tell me more about current health then. And I want to know, I want to know the early days. I want to know how you turned this idea. You've, you've spoken about the problem. You've spoken about spotting, you know, clear problems in the system with your grandmother not not receiving the preventative care necessary and being able to be treated at home you've talked about the way things are on the wards and spotting that problem how did you go from that to then early mvp early product tell me about those days yeah so i i think at the start um we had this idea of hey could could we build a device that would track the same vital signs that the nurse or HCA would do when they went around the world. And then could we use that data to try and identify the deteriorating patient? And we, we were quite fixed on that. And, and actually, we haven't strayed that far in, in conceptually from, from that initial that initial vision. Yeah. We had, or I had no idea at the time, how to build that, you know, I, mean, I had done computer science, but it was largely software, you know, yeah. we hadn't touched the electronics, hadn't touched hardware. Um, I was very, very lucky early on in the, the, the genesis of the idea to meet my co-founder, Stuart, who was a, a PhD in computer science and truly one of the smartest people that I've ever met in my entire life. And <laughs> between the two of us, we managed to define a bit more what we were trying to build but it was still very rough. And then we managed to pull together uh, money from friends and family and take that to some uh, subcontract designers and developers to help actually design the physical electronics and hardware mm. um, with very little idea of what we were doing. And there's <laughs> mistakes in there. Um, and Stuart and myself, um, and then our, our, the first member of our team, Tom, um, who joined a year, 18 months later, focused on building all the software and, um, and the kind of algorithmic side of what we were, what we were doing. And at, at that point, we were still pretty focused on the inpatient application, but we, we still thought that the home was a kind of evolution down the road for us. Um, so we, we focused a lot on the, the physical device and the algorithmic side of saying, hey, we think this patient's going to deteriorate, but we, we very much wanted to apply it inpatient and we spent the first couple of years of the business kind of beg borrowing and stealing enough to put our first generation device together and trying to understand how it would best work within the inpatient side yeah we then i think had had a lot of reflection on the fact that you know when we went to meet with hospital executives a lot of them would say hey, this is really cool and it could save us some time 
but actually strategically we're not that interested in the, the hospital side of what we're doing right now. You know, it's, it's not our main area of focus. Our main area of focus is actually how do we get people out and keep them out of the hospital and not have them come in. And everyone kept pushing us and saying the, the way you're approaching this could be very interesting in the outpatient environment. So we decided to pivot our focus exclusively to the home and then encountered a whole host of other of other problems that, that we had to work on. You know, the I, I don't believe that success within remote patient monitoring or remote healthcare or virtual care or, or any of the different terms that have been applied to it. So it's not about just throwing a wearable at the patient and saying, hey, we're going to monitor them. It's the entire platform around that wearable. It's the final mile of how we get, get into the patient's home. And most importantly, it's the clinical workflow that Absolutely. we link to. So a lot of our work over the, the last couple of years has been figuring out that um, and trying to get that right. Yeah, and it's it's that sort of, I suppose, maturity, you might call it, or knowing about the space or the fact you've been a ground floor medic at some point in your life. It means that you've got this understanding that actually it is about the clinical workflow. That is the most important thing, because even the way that you told that story, you you were focused, you were focused on a good product, first of all, again, incredibly important. You weren't necessarily going to be made or broken on a hospital exec liking it or loving it because you had you, you, you had this vision you're mission driven you're mission driven along a vision to keep people at home and keep them treated at home and it seems that with that north star you've been able to kind of retain focus because even to pivot early on you might have even tried to go down both roads and got distracted and slowed down but it seems that even you've had that focus to do that but one question i did have for you actually and I've been asked by some of the listeners actually to always pull people up on this, that when they say they were so lucky to meet their co-founder, how did you actually meet? And the reason I ask is because most often it's because people are in the right place at the right time, or they were talking about their company to literally everybody that would listen and they eventually got someone on board. I mean, how did you guys actually meet? Yeah, it's a fair question. Um, <laughs> one of the most common you know, pieces of advice I think people get, and I think it's spot on is, you know, you have to go and find the co-founder and it never ever comes with that. And this is how you should go find them. Yeah, this is it. Because people always say, well, where should I look? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know. Just just go to every event, speak about your company to literally everybody, like put good, put those vibes out and see what happens. But yeah, no, I'm so interested, mate. Yeah, I mean, the in, in Stuart and I's case, again, it was complete luck. I, I, I had been speaking at an event about, the idea that I had, one of his friends was there and attending that event. And at the same time, Stuart had been expressing kind of similar interests to that friend and he had put us together. And we nice. got together for coffee in 2015. And um, we just, there was a very, very clear alignment of, um, very, very clear alignment of skills. We got along incredibly yeah. well. I mean, one of the best friends in the world now. Nice. Um, and there we are. I, I think, you know, it's, there is no like a kind of common founding story. I don't think, uh, you know, there's, I know people who've met their co-founders in college or uni and, and, and I've, I know people who've met their co-founders as, as childhood friends and grown up with them mm. and through to people like Stuart and myself who met, you know, at the, the very genesis of the company. Um, I, I don't think there is a, 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 
a common story or a best story. It's just the way things work out. Absolutely. And I think, honestly, it's just another example, again, of putting yourself in the right place at the right time and, and you know, being at that event and talking about your company to everybody involved. It does seem like that is a commonality for the people that do call it luck. But yeah, let's get back to the story then. So where we are now then, you've, you've made the decision to focus on, on stuff at home. You and your co-founder built it, I suppose, to MVP. You're, you're having these conversations with different people about buying it. At what point did you kind of what did it all click and you kind of put the business model together you got a first person that paid for it or you set it up within the clinical workflow what were those moments like the kind of getting through the gates and the green lights yeah so annoyingly i don't think there's one specific moment that that there's a few big inflection points for us through the journey yeah um so one of them was getting to ce marking which is european regulatory approval which we got in early 2018 and we raised our first big round of investment, um, which I think was about two and a half million pounds at, at that yeah. point. Yeah. And did you do that in the UK at this point, or had you already moved to the US? No, no, this was still UK. So okay. we, we had decided we would go for CE marking first, and then we would go for FDA clearance afterwards. And at that point, um, we were still kind of split focus between the UK and US markets. So I was starting to spend a lot more time in the US meeting okay. hospital execs, but we were also spending a lot of time with, with UK NHS execs. Um, for the next kind of year, we were then pretty solidly focused on getting FDA clearance and trying to sell into our first NHS trusts. And the, the, we submitted our FDA clearance in, uh, what, late? 2018 early 2000 uh, yeah late 2018 initially and um no sorry mid 2018 we got our fda clearance our first fda clearance in late 2018 and then we sold into our first nhs trust just after that which was dartford and graves from time in oh, wow. and um again a lot of this with um with the first NHS trust and Neil Perry, who's their CIO, I, I think comes down to luck and serendipity. Mm. I, I had met a, an acquaintance of Neil's who knew he was interested in looking at remote patient monitoring and wearables and monitoring at home. He, he had, uh, or she had put Neil and myself in touch. And there's no doubt about it, Neil took a huge chance on us. You know, we, we didn't have, yeah. um, we didn't have other, established NHS client. We were still very immature as a business and a product, but he really liked the vision of what we were doing. Um, and they became our first client um, in late 2018, I think around Christmas time. So that was a, a big moment for us because we'd went revenue positive and we'd achieved FDA clearance. Um, and things started to really accelerate mm-hmm. from us. The NHS stamp of approval. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that 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 was a, a big end of the year, um, and a, it was a huge achievement to get FDA clearance. Um, that, that was a huge performance bar that, that we had to meet, um, and was a big celebration for the team. And then to top it off by getting to our first revenue and our first NHS trust actively using the product and giving us great feedback and you know saying they liked it was was again a huge win for us. Yeah. And so talk me through then. So that, that first NHS contract and even, I suppose, getting the FDA approval and C marking, what at this point, 
what what does the product actually look like what's the user journey through it what's going on with the tech like talk me through the the product yeah so at that point it was still really pretty minimal it was the wearable which was this kind of iphone sized device that sat on the upper arm so that would continuously monitor things like their respirate and their O2 sats yeah. through to you know their activity levels. We had just started um, looking at how we would integrate other products and devices into our into our ecosystem and platform, and we had done the very first integration, which at that point was was just for blood pressure. And I'll, I'll come on to the integration topic later. Um, and then we had a an app that was on a, uh, at that point just an iPhone, which the the nurse or, or physician could use to view vital signs. And at, at that point, the alarm was simply driven by a change in um, in news score. You know, it was it was still yeah. super simple um, and very immature, and a ton of stuff that that didn't work great, and that we had to we had to quite quickly improve. But it was a an MVP that proved the point and was good enough at that scale to work well. Um, and where were the, when it triggered, i.e. if someone hit a certain score and they were clearly becoming unwell, what happened then? Where would the data go? What would it trigger, you know, actionable insights and all that sort of stuff? You know, who's going to then come through? Like what, how, how did that bit work? Yeah. So we, the, the wearable transmitted over Wi-Fi. Um, first problem we had is a ton of patients didn't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we we built a little box called our Home Hub, which provided Wi-Fi for the patients' home okay. and transmitted the data out over the cellular network. And um, that 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 has become one of our biggest USPs, and it, it was built over an eight-week period. You know, <laughs> Amazing. Really quickly rushed out, albeit has been improved significantly since then. Um, it would then the data would come back to our platform in the cloud and then our platform would calculate the new score from the vital signs that we were receiving yeah and if the new score increased above a threshold it would send a push notification to the phone of you know whoever it whoever was in that organization that had signed up to receive them so in that case it was the hospital at home team and they were responding to this I think between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. at night, so it wasn't a 24/7 service. Yeah. So at that point, it was still, it was still pretty, um, still pretty simple. Nice. And so, plot the route from there to now. Then, what happened in the meantime? Where are you guys at now with both the product and, I suppose, your scale, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. So we discovered a couple of things early on in 2019. Um, so the first one was that the, and I alluded to this earlier, the wearable was not going to be on its own enough. It doesn't doesn't solve the entire problem. I mean, for me, the, the real problem is how do you identify disease onset or deterioration and the wearable was going to just be one part of that. Mm. So we made a couple of product decisions in 2019, which, which turned out to be very good bets. The first one was that we were going to start integrating um, other best-in-class devices and products for other parameters that we were interested in or, or that our clients were interested in, but we weren't going to monitor from the wearable ourselves. And the, the most recent one of those we've done is with Dexcom, which is the... Oh, yeah. They've been on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, th- that was a 
a huge undertaking on both our and Dexcom's part. It was the, the first time they'd done a type of integration like this and it was very technically complicated to get to get mm. right. Um, but we decided we would effectively become this platform, you know, centered around our wearable um, for integration to other devices. Um, so that was one of them. The second one is that we realized we had to have our own kind of interface or surface to the patient. So we built out our own um, interface and application that the patient would receive. And there was a, a couple of different purposes for that. What, one was to get contextual information from the patient. What we felt if we were going to try and be accurate in alerting and identifying disease onset, we also had to understand symptoms. So we wanted to capture symptoms from the patient. We wanted to be able to facilitate video visits between the patient and their care team because one of the problems our clients had was once we had generated an alert, um, they had no way of then contacting the patient easily to assess mm. them, and we wanted to be end-to-end. -end. Um, so we, we, we built out a ton of patient engagement um, features into the system as well. And then we spent a ton of time working on final mile. So by final mile, I mean, really, how do we get the patient activated correctly and set up on our system? And we spent and continue to spend a huge amount of time in trying to make that as simple as humanly possible yeah. for the patient, that they can get up and running in less than five minutes and everything just works out of the box for them. A huge amount of investment into, into final mile. It's the hardest part of what we do. We then started to focus on um, on growing. So where we sit today, we're in about 19 NHS trusts. We've grown from one at the end of 2018 to 19 today. We're in about 30 US health systems um, at the moment. Uh, we're growing particularly over 2020. I mean, we have... Um, Grown about eight and a half thousand percent in revenue terms between um, September 2020 and September 2019. Wow. So we've grown massively. Um, we now employ about 75 people. About 75 percent of that headcount is in the United Kingdom, and the other 25 percent is in the United States. Um, and now we almost exclusively focus just on that that home opportunity, um, mainly in assisting NHS trusts and US hospitals to mm. discharge patients earlier from the hospital so you can reduce um, length of stay by one or two days and then try and reduce readmissions in a subsequent 30 to 90 day period while improving outcome and experience. Amazing and I've got a couple of questions here I mean the, well the first thing I want to pull out is your attention to final mile because in another way of saying, you know, that's attention on the adoption of it. It's making it sticky. It's making sure that it's easy for people to be onboarded. And I think, you, you know, you've declared it really succinctly. You know, you put a lot of investment into that to get them set up correctly and increase that adoption. And I think that is, again, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a good way of doing things in the sense that you appreciate that that is where things can fall down. You know, you and I both know 
there are so many products that could be put into healthcare. As as one of our bosses used to say, you know, the future's already here. It's just not very well distributed. And we know this. The the technology is across other sectors. It's in labs. It's doing all sorts of bits and bobs. The key for healthcare is getting things adopted properly. So you've got to make sure you solve a problem. You've got to make sure you solve it extremely well. You've got to make sure that it works for all parties involved and that it's a net reduction of work for everybody. And the fact that the users can be onboarded easily so they actually do end up using it and the whole thing's got to work together. And it seems that in listening to your story, it seems so measured and it seems that you went on this journey with all of that kind of insight from day one that that's where it had to get to which means that you've ended up building it in such a way. And yes, you, you say it's luck that you betted on certain things, but actually, you know, that those were all calculated decisions and risks and all the rest of it. And I suppose my question now going forwards is, um, or, or on that stuff is, is yeah, how much was luck and how much was design? Because actually it seems to me that a lot of it was design and it, it probably is often that, that leaders don't give themselves enough credit for that sort of stuff. I think some of it's luck. I think, some of it is good decisions or, or really good bets, actually, I think is, is mm. a better phrase than good decisions. I, I think a lot of it, though, is actually down to how quickly you can react to, to the feedback and data you're receiving Interesting. and how resilient you are to the disasters that will hit you along the way. Mm. So, I, you know, I, I'm presenting, I guess, a, a measured journey that we went through in, in reality you know, a, a lot of the things that we've done were based on things that didn't work and feedback we received and data showing, you know, something didn't work the way we expected and then having to fairly rapidly react to that situation and try and try and rectify it. I, I, I guess I've come to believe that success in building a company is largely down to your resilience to failure like it's mm. down to how quickly you can respond to that failure and how willing you are to just kind of keep going until you figure out how to make it work and you know a lot of it does have to come down to are you in the right place at the right time like you know there's no doubt in my mind that covid has at least accelerated the adoption of our system there's, there's no way that we could have predicted those those macro effects but we you know when covid hit and we suddenly came under significant demand to deploy our product and deploy it at scale you know some of the stuff we've had to do this year from particularly uh well from all aspects but for example from a supply chain perspective to be able to deliver on time yeah. and deliver to our clients has been pretty crazy and that's down to the incredible hard work of our team and their resilience and desire to get it done despite despite odds and um, so I, I to come back to your point I, some of it is definitely luck some of it is definitely that we placed good bets and those bets came true or, or yeah, played yeah. The way we wanted sure. a lot of it's down to the fact that we have an incredible team um, and yeah. who have worked really really hard and who even when things haven't worked for us have just faced it off and said well, we're going to sort it and I do, you know, the more entrepreneurs that I speak to with the size of companies that, that you guys have, it seems to me that when people do 
credit the team for all their hard work and that being a key factor. I also, in my own head, am starting to believe that actually that has to go hand in hand with good leadership. And actually, that when people are crediting their team, it probably does say a lot for the strength of that leadership. And I imagine yours was um, was very similar in that period. And I was going to ask you about COVID-19 specifically, actually. And and, and you've, you've kind of answered the question in the sense that you definitely have seen an uptick and, a, and an uptick in demand. Has it been actual COVID-19 patients that have been discharged that you've been looking after? Or is it the fact that nobody's been able to come in and therefore the, the demand for monitoring everybody at home has increased? How has that played out? Um, a, a, a bit of both. It, it's been somewhat geographic. So I think if, if I rewind to, to March, um, when COVID initially hit, and this is kind of early to mid-March, we were uncertain at that point how it was going to affect us. It, it was unclear. I mean, no one was clear how it was going to affect them at that point. Um, and then towards the end of March, all of a sudden, particularly from the UK market, we suddenly started getting, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 calls a day from NHS trusts who were wow. seeking um, any solution, I think is how it Out of it. interest, who in the trust was calling you? What job title did they have? Oh, everything from <laughs> okay. team leads to um, heads of transformation to, yeah. in some cases, frontline nurses and um, wow. doctors. Um, I mean, that, that was, the NHS had, and this is in no way like a pejorative comment, they, they had a very knee-jerk reaction at the end of March to where things were going. Yes. And um, there was a kind of desire for any solution that could be perceived as even assisting in any way yes. with the thought of what might be to come. Mm. Um, we, that knee-jerk reaction we saw die down as we proceeded through April and into May. Um, and then, interestingly, the US demand picked up. It started to grow in, in April and May, but we saw it significantly grow as we came out of, of the second quarter of the year and into the third quarter of the year. Um, so US demand increased kind of steadily throughout the year and, it, and is at a higher point now than it's ever been this year, mm. whereas UK demand kind of slowly reduced as the UK became more measured and started looking at, um, you know, different NHS organisations in the UK have all now issued remote patient monitoring framework tenders and so on. Um, I, I think we have monitored hundreds, probably thousands of COVID-19 positive patients now in, in both the United States and United Kingdom. Um, we've also done a lot of work monitoring patients who either were considered high risk to the disease and there was a desire to get them out of the hospital to safeguard them or lower risk patients who they didn't want to admit in the first place just to try and maintain capacity. So we've seen use in both COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 use cases. So I just want to, before we have uh, have to wrap up, I, I want to talk to you about the the tech and I'll talk about the, the future of your platform now, because obviously COVID-19 from what you just said has provided you an incredible use case that's been thrust into, into all of our consciousnesses of, um, of what, what could go wrong, what could happen. And so all of these checks and balances need to be in place, different new, new uh, models of working, new ways of, of uh, prevention and diagnosis and treatment, and frankly, keeping people out of hospital as your platform is doing. 
as you look towards the future now, first of all, I think the question for a lot of new technologies is, is, is this going to stick? And I think that's the, that's the first question that I've got in terms of these new models of working. So do, do you think the benefits of what people are seeing with at-home monitoring and prevention, are those benefits great enough that we end up keeping this new model of care once there is the ability to nip back into an outpatient clinic and and do those different things what do you think about that stuff being so close to it yeah so we got a couple of different thoughts on that one is i think that patient behavior um is an unknown factor in this you know patients right now and i think it will take a while to recover i think are scared and nervous to go back to gp practices and go back to hospitals and although some volume is recovering I think we're still seeing in, in both the UK and US much lower patient volumes and, and patients who are, are nervous and scared to, to go into institutional facilities. Um, so I, I think if that plays out and continues, that will be a driving factor in more um, home-based care and, and therefore more home-based monitoring. Yeah. Um, the, the other side of it is, is about outcomes and return on investment. I think one of the challenges that the NHS has is that they aren't sometimes great at transformation and changing healthcare models. You know, they, and, and this is a sweeping generalization, but <laughs> the, the successful organizations that we see um, are willing to change the care model. They're willing to adopt a new pathway that is enabled by technology mm-hmm. and that allows them to do that pathway or model differently than they might have done before. Um, and they're open-minded about that and they want to collaborate on that. The unsuccessful organizations that we see um, typically want to try and throw technology onto the top of an existing yes. pathway and don't see that technology as a way of changing practice or, or, or the necessity to change practice. And they don't really look at how it is embedded and that is unsuccessful in my view and to those organizations in my view too often are, are not particularly collaborative either you know they feel they know best so i i actually think that the answer is not just about um the technology it's about the recognition that the model of care will need to change if mm. it's going to be successful technology is just an enabler for that but the model of care itself has to be done differently and if they're unwilling to do it differently it will not be successful yeah i i agree with you and actually it reminds me of when i was at the first accelerator that that i ran the digital health london accelerator and being in so many conversations with people high up in hospitals that that will the decision makers essentially it made me realize that actually a role of the center might be to actually incentivize organizations to have the appetite to change the models because at the end of the day they are keeping things the same for good reason in the sense that it's a workaround that's working right now and actually the risk of completely changing the model as you said you know quite near the start someone had to take a punt someone had to take a chance and you kind of you don't want it to have to be that you want. I, I believe anyway, from, from being in, the, in those conversations that there is probably more that could be done to actually incentivize organizations to innovate rather than just relying 
on innovative people that might be a little bit risk-taking in order to actually do that. I'm not sure if you've got any thoughts on that. I think you're right. I think that there is a, I mean, I think this is true of a lot of big organizations, but there's almost a, an institutional or personal fear of innovation and change. I think you're right. It's personal. I think you're right because it lands on, on, on personal, it's personal risk, right? To your job, your family, your living. I, I, I think it doesn't, it perhaps doesn't help that in the UK we have such a tight coupling between healthcare and politics and, and yeah. it, that is the same in the United States, but it's, it's, it's very different, you know, there in, in terms of that relationship, you know, here if an individual NHS, NHS organization fails or doesn't successfully deliver something, you know, that can be front page news mm. and it's almost a societal thing that, that we're, we're scapegoating and we're blaming them for making mistakes instead of saying it, it within reason is, is okay to make mistakes and it's okay to learn and, and we shouldn't punish that. Yeah. Um, we should try and learn from it. And, and you know, the, the best example of that is probably the, you know, the huge NHS IT contract, which, you know, still gets talked about today as reasons why, um, as reasons why some things don't happen or shouldn't happen. And yeah, clearly that, that was a, an organizational mess, but should we allow that to dictate our healthcare policy for the next two, three, four decades? Or actually should we look at some of the specific reasons that that didn't work and say, well, let's not, let's not over index on one situation. I absolutely agree. I could not agree with you more on changing the fact that we, changing our attitude towards mistakes i think that is something that could be so much better and it's almost it's almost praised in entrepreneurship you know you you make mistakes it's linear on the way to success the path to success is um all over the place that you've got your ups you've got your downs all that sort of thing but you're absolutely right you know holding healthcare to such a high regard that it cannot ever make mistakes just i suppose i suppose breeds that fear and uh, yeah it'd be it'd be interesting to it'd be interesting if there were better incentives for for innovation i i just don't know what they'd be so i can't i can't knock it too much but um just before we finish mate i I want to talk to you about the future of your platform and i'm going to throw some words at you for you to discuss so so with all the data that you have and you're collecting and the way that you're doing things i'm going to say personalization i'm going to say ai and i'm going to say machine learning and uh i'd like you to give me your thoughts on those things yeah so our we capture a, a huge amount of of um, health information, labelled human health information, that gives us a pretty unprecedented opportunity to understand what happens in the the lead up to deterioration and disease mm-hmm. onset. Um, our real interest as a company is in using that data set to start saying, hey, can we predict that is this specific patient who's at high risk of having um, a decompensation of their heart failure or is you know mm-hmm. an acute exacerbation of their COPD or is, is going to require hospitalization. But we want to try and use that to drive far more preventive or proactive treatment than is is currently um, is currently possible. I, I, I kind of hate using the phrase artificial intelligence <laughs> um, just purely because it's been corrupted. You're a purist, mate. <laughs> um, but our interest is very much in using the data for 
machine learning with the ultimate goal of saying, hey, we think this patient is is at high risk of deteriorating over the next, you know, two days or two weeks and getting them preventive treatment. And so what is the vision then, if we were to fast forward months, years, depending on, on how far you guys look into the future of of what the product looks like and the way that this is adopted sort of or mass adopted at scale? What does that actually physically look like for people? So I, I think we believe that over the next kind of 20 years, it's likely that a substantial percentage of the population will have their health monitored 24 seven. And so we want to be first and foremost, the best in the world at, at capturing um, human health data at the individual level and doing that as passively and invisibly as possible. Um, but if we're going to monitor a substantial portion of the population, we have to be incredibly good at separating the signal from the noise or you're just generating way too much data that no one can do anything with. So that that's why our mission and focus is identification and prediction of disease onset so that if we can successfully monitor the health of you know, a, a huge part of the global population, we can then actually say, hey, it's this group of patients who require treatment and then get them to their physician so the physician can do what they do best. So we intend to take this to you know, a huge fraction of the, of the population globally. And as you say, that's when it gets interesting, when you really talk about the scale of what can be done. And well, I suppose even at the individual level, right, it almost, it almost strikes me, you know, in, in where we are with, with technology, if you do have heart failure uh, or you do have, you know, quite end stage COPD or, or whatever, or not even end stage, but if you've got COPD, why wouldn't you have 24 seven monitoring to pick up when you were about to deteriorate so that you can have that course of antibiotics, you know, days earlier and, and all the rest of it to prolong your quality of life that, that makes a lot of sense to me um and i think as you say you say 20 years who knows how long it'll take but um i absolutely agree with your vision of doing that both at the individual level but then at scale because being able to have that kind of population level data means that so much could be done and i think the future is very exciting on that stuff and i get i get excited when, when problems are actually solved i don't tend to get excited i said this on the podcast today i don't tend to get excited about blockchain or as you say ai or any of these different the different things right i don't i don't get excited about that but i get excited when you say things like you know how many years ago that you a couple of years ago that you actually integrated this with a hospital at home team who actually received the push notification between eight and eight and then went to somebody's home to respond that stuff is super exciting for me because I can feel that very viscerally having been a ground floor clinician. I can, you know, I have a smile on my face that like that is actually happening out there. And I think it bodes really well that there's innovators like yourself who have got and entrepreneurs like yourself that have got backgrounds in things like computer science that can look at problems in a different way in medicine and can actually have the, the skill and the team and the luck and the design and everything to build companies like you've done. And I think it's, I think it's awesome. And I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, hearing about it on this podcast, Chris. So thanks so much for coming on. No, it was great fun to talk about it. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. And if, uh, if any of the listeners want to get in touch with you, Chris, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, so they can email me at uh, Christopher at currenthealth.com. Perfect. And have you got like a LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff that I can stick in? I do. Um, they can search for me at Christopher McCann on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. I'm Christoph McCann. Perfect. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, James. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. 
Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.